All right, Steve, it's all you, darling. Okay. Thanks, Megan. Uh, so my name is Steve. I'm an alcoholic and drug addict. And uh, I guess I'll first uh, uh, identify. Um, I got to my first meeting on March 15th of uh, 1985 and never left. And uh, after a few minutes, you'll understand why. So uh, to provide context, we moved around a lot when I was a kid. I mean, a real lot. I went to 13 different schools. We moved a real lot. Uh, it turned out my dad was taking these quick moves from his company to make extra money. So my parents bought and sold houses every place we moved. They never made any money on those houses, and they never learned their lesson. It was just sort of a funny upbringing. So I was every place that the U.S. was testing uh, missiles because none of them were operational. This is early 60s. Um, that's where we were. We were in Vandenberg. We were at Cape Canaveral. We were in Seattle. Thank goodness we never got sent to Great Falls, Montana, which is another place they were testing. So I had the advantage of a really um, interestingly geographically diverse upbringing. So I grew up all over the place. And so I was always the new kid, which for a couple of my siblings was really difficult. A couple of my sisters had a real hard time with it. Me, I, I loved it. I was always the new kid. I always got to meet new people. And um, it was never a problem. I developed a, a, along the lines of being able to meet, meet and greet people immediately and I don't think I formed deep friendships until much later in my teen years, but I formed a lot of really quick friendships, quick, shallow ones. And I guess I'm still pretty good at that. So, so yeah, we moved around a lot. And then we finally landed back in our hometown of uh, the northern suburbs of Detroit. And that's where I uh, ended up uh, going to high school. High school and college. So, so my childhood years were, well, they felt normal to me, even though, you know, we were moving around all over the place. Uh, we actually moved every 10 months or more frequently uh, from the time I was five till the time I was, I don't know, 13. So a lot of moves. <clears throat> And um, the funniest one was we moved back to a suburb of Seattle uh, when dad was with Boeing. We moved back to a suburb of Seattle and uh, moved into a house that was right across the street from the last house we lived in. It was really sort of strange. You look out the picture window and there's the house where we used to live. And there's my bedroom. And now I'm over here. That was odd. It was sort of an odd way to grow up, but it was okay. Um, like I said, I really didn't have any problems with it. It was sort of, sort of fun, sort of cool. Uh, we landed back, as I said, in uh, the northern suburbs of Detroit, uh, which had been our hometown, which is my hometown. And I got really sick 
when I was 13, I had a neuromuscular disease and uh, I was paralyzed from the hips down. I offer this as context because it really sort of colored um, the way that I went through my teen years and early adulthood. It sort of put a almost like a veil on it. It was really odd. Anyhow, I recovered uh, nearly 100%. And um, I say nearly 100% because I still can't jump. It took away my uh, 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 spring in my uh, ankles and legs. I sort of flopped downstairs. And uh, I don't have any uh, uh, I have flexibility in my ankles, but I don't have any real strength in them. I don't have any spring as a result. Um, which is typical of what I had. Uh, so if you ever see me in person, you'll notice I have a slight limb. It's like, yeah, okay. But my family never talked about it. After I recovered, they never mentioned it again. It was, in retrospect, that was a little strange. In fact, that was more than a little strange. So... I guess I, I sort of grew up with, uh, well, not exactly a secret, just stuff that, a thing we didn't talk about, which was sort of odd. Anyhow, made it through high school and early adulthood and started, uh, was exposed to, <laughs> was exposed <laughs> <laughs> I made a grab for any fucking drug I could get my hands on. That's the truth. I wasn't exposed to anything. So my high school years, uh, I started out using and ended up dealing. And uh, uh, I learned a lot about stonewalling people, including people in authority. And uh, learned a lot about buying and selling, frankly. And I'm amazed that I never got caught at any of this, or at least I got caught, but I talked my way out of it twice. But the big stuff, the felony stuff, I never got caught. So um, was I drinking? Yeah, of course. Was I smoking weed? Well, sure. Was I doing opiated hash? I was selling opiated hash, for God's sakes. Detroit's a uh, uh, sort of a, 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 a pathway from uh, Germany and Turkey to the U.S. Um, via Canada. So we had all sorts of hash and opiated hash and opium. Um, and this is in the mid to late 60s. I'm 71, so I was 15, 16. Yeah, yeah. We were bringing stuff in from Canada. I say we, I mean me and my friends. Uh, nothing major, frankly. I mean, well, they were major drugs, but not major drug buys. So was I drinking? Yeah. Yeah, always. You know, it's it part of the part of the routine. Uh, I didn't drink um, much during high school. After high school, yeah, and then I didn't drink much in college. Um, just just using drugs. Um, and when I became sort of a, an early adulthood, all of a sudden, alcohol became quite a large part of my life. Um, <laughs> I have this really odd memory, this really odd memory of drinking seven or eight white Russians one night and my friends taking me outside and standing me up 
in the snow up against the side of a building. And I was standing there in the snow. It must have been, oh, I don't know, 30 degrees, 28 degrees. And I was just standing there, leaned up against the wall. I don't know how long I was there for, but I, I think I was there for quite a while. Um, and I wasn't even wearing a top coat. I, my sport coat was inside the, the bar. I was standing out in shirt sleeves and a tie without you know without snow boots in the snow and you know what's funny the funny part of it is that didn't strike me as odd that didn't strike me as anything out of the ordinary and in fact all of my years of drinking and using never struck me as anything odd um so i drank and used mostly drank Till we moved to, till I got married and we moved to California. And then I got introduced to cocaine. And let me tell you, that was, I definitely had a vitamin C deficiency that I had to take care of. And uh, uh, boy, did I take care of it. So I had a couple of series of really good paying jobs that went completely up my nose. Um, and so, we're still sort of early adulthood. And, um, and then I became sort of a, sort of a wine connoisseur because we were in California. So I abandoned any pretense of drinking hard liquor. I was just drinking wine or port. Um, and um, it's, it didn't strike me as unusual that other people would have a glass and I would have a bottle. That didn't strike me as odd. Um, or, or in any way unusual. I wasn't in denial. I just didn't notice. Uh, at least I don't think I was in denial, but I just didn't notice. So I ended up um, drinking more and doing more Coke. And the two of them went together really well. And I honestly think that if I hadn't, if I hadn't, uh, done so much coke i probably could have drank for a number of years if i hadn't been exposed exposed to coke, uh, exposed if i hadn't chased cocaine with every fiber of my being is what i really mean uh, uh i i think i probably could have had a number more years of drinking that would have been awful oh my gosh that just would have been awful so so my average day, some, some of you have heard this story. My average day, I would do a couple of lines to get out of the house, you know, to get, get to work. And then once I got to work, um, in my bottom right-hand drawer of my desk at work, there was a bottle of Hennessy's at all times. And the Hennessy's went in my coffee. And I started drinking as soon as I got to the office. So that's 8.30 in the morning, 20 to 9. So I was drinking at 8.30 in the morning, and that didn't seem odd to me. And I'd do that. I'd nurse that until I could go across the street, across the parking lot from our office building. There was a hotel. The hotel bar opened up at 11.30, and I could start drinking like a gentleman. I could order a carafe of white wine by myself, 
and uh, start drinking and have some sort of semblance of lunch and then go back to work and do another couple of lines. And and that was until I got home for dinner for, for dinner or was out to dinner with somebody and could do another bottle of wine or more. And what's odd about that, the strangest thing is that that didn't seem unusual to me. That seemed like, I don't know, that was just my life. That's just how I lived. And it was, in retrospect, I look back at that and it's like, how could you not notice, buddy? You know, how, 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 yeah, I just look back at that and it's like, God, it's really strange. And I did that for years. And the only, and thank goodness, because, um, or thank goodness for this next part, because I was really lucky. I mean, we're still married. We've been married for 50 years. But um, the way we stayed married is my wife was a, an auditor for Bank of America and finishing up her degree at San Jose State at the same time. So she went to, she worked full-time and went to school full-time. And at nights and on weekends, she was studying. So um, for a degree in uh, finance and accounting, uh, which she successfully completed. But the thing is, I was a zombie. I was a zombie for the last couple, three years of my drinking and using. And honestly, she just had too much on her plate. So she, I don't know if she was in denial or just ignoring it. I think she was sort of ignoring it. And that's, I got really lucky because if she had been sort of clued in to all this stuff, I think, boy, I think it could have been over. So um, so everything was fine in my mind, and everything was working fine in my mind until all of a sudden had the strangest thing happen. Um, March 13th of 1985, had a sales call. We had a vendor come in town and he, we had a, a, a buddy call with a vendor, me and my sales team. And we came out of this meeting thinking, wow, we just landed a great big deal. So we went, decided that we would celebrate before we even got the purchase order, which by the way, the funny part is the purchase order never came in, <laughs> never did turn into a real deal. So, um, uh, <laughs> so we went out to celebrate and um, <laughs> and the celebration, we started with lunch, and I had um, we we split a uh, a bottle of wine three ways, and then um, myself and the vendor guy we split a bottle of wine two ways, and then I ordered um, another bottle and um, drank that myself. So a third of a bottle, half a bottle and a full bottle of wine with lunch. That did strike me as odd. And then for some reason, I felt like um, drinking hard liquor. And I ended up standing at the bar after these two guys left and I drank nine shots. Um, that's an awful lot of alcohol. So um, 
Interestingly enough, that was the day I was supposed to take my wife to the airport uh, in San Jose so she could fly back to see Peggy's to see her mother. And by the time I got her to the airport, I was psychotic. I mean, I wasn't high. I wasn't drunk. I was just totally out of my mind. And as she walked out to the airplane, in those days, everybody could go you know, to the gate. She walked out to the airplane. She was crying. So here I was just standing there. I got in the car and I drove home in a blackout. My first and knock on wood, only blackout. And uh, I don't know how I got home, what route I took, but I was driving a brand new car. And um, I was so scared. I came out of the blackout when I drove into my garage. And uh, I was so scared of what had just happened that I couldn't look at the car. Um, I reached behind me to close the garage door with the switch. And I didn't, I didn't look at the car. And I walked into the house and uh, I went in the den, turned on the TV, and I sat there until the next morning. I did not go to sleep. I sat there until the next morning until the birds started singing. And uh, I was I was still, I was still, I don't know if I was high or loaded or psychotic or what. I was just the weirdest I've ever been in my whole life. And I was like that all day. I made a couple of phone calls and a friend, a friend had a friend who was a psychiatrist who suggested I go to a 12 step meeting. And I walked into um, a CA meeting, Cocaine Anonymous, uh, Friday night, March 15th, 1985. And, uh, I was, greeted, I was greeted at the door by these two women. They couldn't have been five feet tall. And they said, you're new. I said, yeah, I am. I had just come from work, and I was wearing a pinstripe suit. Uh, I think it was charcoal. A pinstripe suit, white shirt, red silk foulard tie, shine shoes. I had a weak old Mercedes. I thought I was the shit. And I walked in the door and these two women said to me, you're new. I said, I am. They said, okay, go in the kitchen and wash ashtrays. So that was my first job. I went in the kitchen and I washed ashtrays. And you know what? I had that job for months. I walked in, I took off my suit coat, rolled up my white sleeves. And I washed ashtrays. It was a great job. I got to meet all these people. Um, I got to learn to get to the meetings early. And I got to stay um, at the meetings late. And I got to talk to people and meet people. And that was important because as soon as I stopped drinking, I lost every so-called friend I had in 90 days. Within 90 days, there wasn't a single person who I had known previously that was still talking to me. Not a one. Um, it turns out they weren't, they were drinking friends. They were drinking friends. They were good time friends, but they certainly weren't in support of my newfound sobriety. So 
<laughs> I did I did something really crazy. I uh I quit smoking too. And so I quit drinking, smoking, and doing drugs. And I honestly didn't smile for about two years. It was just <laughs> it was difficult. And I don't know, but somehow I I misunderstood something. Um when they said 90, do 90 meetings in 90 days. I heard that as do a meeting every day. So I did for two years. And I was traveling the United States at the time. I was on the road, sales job, high tech sales job. Um, so I got to go to meetings everywhere. Um, and that was, that was my life. I did a, for years, I did a city a day, four days a week um, for years. Cause I used to, my specialty was rolling out new products um, to uh, computer retail stores when there were 12,000 computer retail stores in the United States. Now there's probably three, <laughs> not 3,000, just three. Anyhow, um, so yeah, I, I, I used to go to meetings and I had in the old days, you know, there was no internet. This is 1986 and seven. Um, there was no internet. I had I had meeting booklets. I had meeting booklets from like every city and town that I went to regularly. So I'd get off the plane um, and I'd know where the next meeting was. And I always stayed at Marriott's. So I'd order, I'd, I'd go to the meeting and then come back to Marriott call room service and order um, a uh, uh, a small pizza with uh, uh, onion, mushroom, and bell pepper. I did that every night. I did that four nights a week. I did that for years and went to meetings every day. And when I was at home in San Jose, I went to um, a meeting a day or two meetings a day. And by that time, I uh, had switched from CA to AA. Uh, there weren't that many CA meetings around it. AA really just made more made more sense to me. Uh, the steps are the same in every twelve step program, but um, just I don't know the. Um, I think the people in AA were a better fit for me. Um, maybe a better social fit. I don't know. And the the pardon me. And the underlying issue I had with drugs and alcohol. I think I think had it resolved itself, it would have turned into just alcohol uh, because a lot of the later years were mostly alcohol. So uh, I identify as an alcoholic and drug addict. Um, and that's that's not for anybody else. That's just to remind me. That's to remind me um, what... Uh, where I go to, right? That's to remind me where I go to when I'm around, whatever. So, um, so yeah, I, I I got to go to meetings everywhere. And then um, I changed jobs, picked up international responsibility, and I got to go to meetings like everywhere. Um, I was at a meeting in London in the basement of a Methodist church, not far from Marble Arch. And I um, 
was sitting there and it was a, a, a bring your own lunch meeting. I didn't know that. I didn't bring any lunch, but I'm just sitting there. And um, the fellow was a uh, 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 British uh, Indian fellow who told a businessman who told my story, my landscape. He told my mental landscape. And I was just, I was mesmerized. I was shocked. I was mesmerized by it because this guy, um, he thought like I think. He related like I relate. And it was it was a wonderful experience. I don't think I've had that experience since. This is probably this is probably 92-ish, 90 or 92-ish. Yeah, and I haven't had that experience since, but it was it was so neat. It was just a, a remarkable experience. And that meeting really stands out in my in my memory as a very yeah, very special experience. He was a really nice man. We spoke for a few minutes after, just a few minutes. He had to go. Um, but yeah, that was that was pretty special. My recovery has been just about just going to meetings. Go to meetings, work the steps. I had a couple of sponsors. Had I've outlived five, five, five. Outlived. Well, I don't know if my second sponsor is still alive. He left, and nobody. He didn't keep track with anybody. He left the Bay Area. I don't know where he went. So he he may be gone. But uh, my last sponsor died um, four years ago. Norm J, one of the finest men I've ever met in my whole life. He never told me to do a goddamn thing. But he told me, he taught, he taught me to trust my judgment. Norm was uh, wonderful. When he passed away, I uh, I was asked to lead the uh, celebration of life. We were very close. He had been my sponsor for 10 years. So I led the celebration of life. And then his wife stopped talking to me. And uh, she had asked me to do it. Uh, she stopped talking to me because, <laughs> as she explained it, uh, Norm and I were so close that it uh, it's too painful for her to talk to me, to visit with me. So uh, my wife and I took her out to dinner one time, and then she cut off communication. And I get it. I really do. He was an awfully special guy. Um, so I don't have a sponsor. I guess I let the meetings sponsor me. I don't know if I'll ever have a sponsor again. I really don't. Um, my relationship with Norm and Norm himself was so very special. I'm tearing up. Uh, God, what a special man. So uh, very fortunate to have met him. And when we're talking about fortune, I think I, <laughs> I probably need to segue. Um, I'm a two-time loser. I've been financially very successful in life and lost everything twice. Um, 
the first time I was uh, a co-founder and uh, CEO of a dot-com and we were a top 500 website in the whole wide world of the 18 or 20 or 50 million websites. We were top 500. We were cash black. We were paying uh, bills. We were growing. We were, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, we were in the black. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, the dot-com meltdown started, started April of 2000. And uh, it took down, took down everybody I knew. Because that's the industry I knew. I had switched uh, by then to the internet and dot-com industry. And so um, everybody that was paying us uh, went out of business in a 90-day period. So over a 90-day period, we literally lost our entire income stream. Sue, I paid everybody's salary out of my pocket for four months. And uh, that was seven figures. I had spent years getting to that number, years, my whole working life. And uh, it was gone in, <clears throat> it was gone in about, yeah, four or five months. Uh, one of my investors took me out to dinner and said, you're paying for this yourself. He said, I'll write you a check. I said, I don't want it. Huh. I said, Charlie, I don't want it. I said, it'll just go down the toilet. I can't take the money. Um, so, yeah. The interesting thing is because I sort of did it straight up, I uh, uh, I still have investors that talk to me. It's 30 years. 30 years? No, 23 years. Uh, 23 years, and they still talk to me, former employees still talk to me and Facebook with me and stuff. So, yeah. So I did it. I did it like a stand-up guy would do it. And I, I got that from the program. Got that from the program because when I got here, I wasn't a stand-up guy. I wasn't honest. I didn't have any personal integrity. And uh, by working these steps and just putting one foot in front of the other. Uh, I've become a, a better man, a better husband, better friend, better person. And uh, that's the long-term result of, uh, uh, of my sobriety. Anyhow, uh, spent the next eight years getting back on our feet and really getting going. I mean, we really got going. We were uh, investing in uh, real estate and we were really making some dough and uh, uh and then the global financial crisis hit <laughs> we lost all of our real estate i lost seven figures again we had spent eight years getting back in the game <laughs> and i laugh about it now but the funniest part is i never thought about drinking and using during that whole thing either meltdown either the dot-com meltdown or the global financial crisis um in 2008 i just i never thought about drinking or using it's weird so i uh, uh uh we were so broke that the last house we were living still living in that we had to give back that house to bank of america anyhow um it was about 3500 square feet on a on a, on a single story 
and we had about a third of an acre in a country club. And uh, we had this 50 foot long pool that had these crossing jets. It was pretty chill. Anyhow, we lost that, had to give that back. Um, but I gave it back like a stand up guy would. Um, the VP at, um, uh, at Bank of America that we surrendered the keys to, she said to me, uh, she said, she was my last name and said, uh, uh, whenever you get back on your feet, Bank of America would love to do business with you again. That was a really cool thing to hear when, when financially we were in the midst of melting down. So, so we were actually, we were so broke that we were selling, um, we were, we were selling furniture uh, out of the house to uh, buy groceries. That's pretty broke. So, <laughs> so I got, I got to restart at age 57. And uh, this last run, this last 14 years has just been wonderful. It's just been wonderful. Uh, do we have, <laughs> it is, it's just, it's just so goofy that uh, we've lost everything twice and it makes, makes us appreciate what we have. Uh, both materially and and non-materially makes us uh, appreciate it. So, huh. Huh. yeah. So I've, uh, like I said, I've been to meetings in foreign countries, and we were fortunate enough uh, when we started rebuilding. I got a job offer in France, and we lived in Paris for a while. And I got to go to meetings, English speaking, because my French, I speak restaurant French. I speak good enough to order in a restaurant. That's about it. <laughs> I speak German, though. My German's decent. Um, so the, um, uh, but going to the French meetings was just, what a gift. Oh my gosh. And that was really my first experience of a more secular meeting because they aren't in Europe. They're not so much into the God stuff. And I used to be a God guy, but over time, it's just not my thing. I don't, I don't, I have my own belief system. I don't tout it to anybody else. I don't care what you believe in. In fact, let me make that a little more strongly. I don't give a fuck what you believe in. It doesn't matter to me. I just don't care. It's fine with me. If it's fine with you, it's fine with me. I don't care. Just don't, don't tell me I've got to believe in your bullshit. No way. I don't believe in anybody else's horseshit. I only believe in my own horseshit. So I was at a meeting that I used to go to all the time. Some mainstream meetings, men's stag, big men's stag, 40, 50 guys. Great meeting, or at least it used to be. Seems to have been taken, taken over recently by these guys that are real Bible thumpers. And you got to believe in God or you'll never get sober and blah, blah. And I just left. It's like, nah, not interested. Don't tell me what I have to believe in. The third tradition says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, period. It doesn't say anything about what you got to believe in or what you have to do. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I really live by that. You know, 
I think that's really important. And it's really important, especially for Americans who are so fucking ignorant. There's 180 countries that have AA, and a lot of those countries don't have a God belief. They don't have a belief in, in a, a, a unitary God, the one, one God. Uh, the Abrahamic religions, you know, are all over the world, you know. And they believe in, in one God. They believe in the same God, even though they don't think they do, because they, they're all fucking ignorant. Um, but all three Abrahamic religions all believe in the same God. It's like, okay. But the other, you know, there's 30 or 40 countries where AA exists, and they don't have a God in that, those countries or in those belief systems. Or maybe they've got 100 gods like India. So... So I don't know. I just I, I just sort of get on my high horse about being told what I'm supposed to believe in. I guess if I believe in something, I believe in the program. Believe that it works. Um, it certainly worked for me. I was telling somebody the other day, happier than I've ever been in my whole life. I don't remember um, being this this happy all the time. It's like, this is sort of weird. I don't know when it started. Um, but it's really sort of fun. And that doesn't mean everything's, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Hell, I had this huge fucking carcinoma taken off my head um, two weeks ago. Oh, four, oh, I'm sorry, four weeks ago. And then the goddamn thing grew back. I had to have the, they dug even deeper this time. Got this hole in my head. I know there are people that think I have a hole in my head, and now they're right. So, so yeah, life isn't perfect, but gosh, it's awfully good when I let it be good. And this whole thing of being happy in my sobriety, like I said, this is sort of, I think this is new. I don't know when it started, but I really sort of like it. And, uh, gee, I think that's, I think that's about it. I don't think I have anything else to say. So, uh, Megan, I'm going to cut it off here. <laughs>